Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Mark 3, 22 through 30, as we return to our series, Mark, the Show Me Gospel. Why is it called that? Well, because... Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. However, today's passage does in fact focus on some words of Jesus. They're going to be very important. And actually, they're even alarming words concerning what has come to be known as, maybe you've heard of this, the unpardonable Sin. Raise your hand if you've heard that term before, or maybe the unforgivable sin, something along those lines, the unpardonable sin. And I don't know about you, but just the mention of it kind of raises my heart rate and creates some anxiety. Uh, We definitely don't want to be guilty of this sin. Uh, Therefore, we need to spend some time this morning asking questions like, what is it? Uh, How do you know if you've committed it or not? And why won't Jesus forgive this sin? So we'll get to those questions in a few moments. But first, let's reset the context of this passage. You'll remember that Mark 20 through, two, Mark 20 through 35 is a sandwich. All right, this is the larger passage of what we're looking at today. In fact, this is the first of four sandwiches that Mark has in his gospel. And what do you need to make a sandwich? Well, first of all, you need two pieces of bread. You need one for the top and one for the bottom, and then you need some meat in the middle. Prior to Easter, we looked at the bread of this first of four sandwiches in Mark. Verses 20 through 21, Jesus faced opposition from his family, and they literally thought he was crazy. Their accusation against him is Jesus is insane. And then there was the passage that we're going to look at today, but then verses 31 through 35, the second part of Jesus experiencing opposition from his family, Jesus is insane. So those are the two pieces of bread. Today, the meat for the sandwich right in the middle, verses 22 through 30, where Jesus faces opposition from religious leaders who make the accusation that Jesus is satanic. Jesus is Satanic. Now the question is, why would Mark construct his text this way? Why does he make sandwiches? And the answer is the sandwich, which the technical term for that is bracketing. It's a literary device where two related stories are used to make a similar point. The stories become interwoven to make a stronger case, a better case. So think about it this way. Um, how many of you like to eat bread? All right, it's good to eat bread by itself. How many of you like to eat meat? It's good to eat meat by itself, but when you put them together, when they become interwoven in a sandwich, that's altogether different, isn't it? that's, That's even better. So that's why Mark does what he does. Mark makes a sandwich interweaving these stories to make a stronger point than it would have been if the stories were separate. So with that in mind, would you please stand with me as I read the text today? Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. The meat. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Thank you for the challenging passages. They, they make us dig. They make us work at it maybe a little bit harder so that we can understand and we can apply it. It keeps us engaged. It keeps us seeking. And your word tells us that when we ask, seek, and knock, that you will answer. So God, this morning, regarding this passage, we ask for your illumination. We seek its meaning, and we knock, God, looking for opportunities to apply it to our lives. So God, would you meet us here in this text and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So, again, Mark 3, 20 through 35, the larger context here is a sandwich. The bread was verses 20 through 21, the bottom piece of bread, 31 through 35. Jesus faces the accusation, opposition from his family that he's insane. Today we have the meat. Jesus faces opposition from religious leaders and the accusation that he is satanic. In this meaty part in the middle, verses 22 through 30, it breaks down into three main parts. We've got an accusation. In verse 22, we've got an analogy in verses 23 through 27, and lastly, an admonition in verses 28 through 30. So let's look first at the accusation in verse 22, which begins like this. It says, and scribes who came down from Jerusalem, scribes who came down from Jerusalem. You remember that scribes were the experts in the Jewish law. It was their job to give its interpretation and application. And so scribes were meant to hold great authority and influence among the Jewish people. Except that in this season, this Jesus fellow has showed up, and he has been undermining their authority and their influence with his teaching and his miracles. And so as the scribes watched the crowds flocking to Jesus, and they sensed that their authority and influence was waning, they were losing their grip on the crowds, they had to do something. So in an effort to squash this trend, they sent an official delegation from Jerusalem. Now, here on a map, we see, again, Jerusalem to Capernaum, where Jesus was ministering. It's a distance of about 100 miles. So if you put yourself in their sandals and you think, wow, in that day and age, to travel 100 miles, that took some effort. And so they were determined. This wasn't something you just, hey, let's go from Jerusalem to Capernaum. They were on a mission. It was a big deal. And interestingly, the text says this, and you'll find this in other places in the scriptures. It says, they came down from Jerusalem. Now, as you look at the map, Capernaum's to the north, right? So why would it say that they came down from Jerusalem? Well, it wasn't so much a statement of geography as it was of topography. For you see, um, Jerusalem was a city built on a hill. And so no matter what direction you traveled, when you left Jerusalem, where were you headed? You were headed down, specifically down the hill. 
So this official delegation of scribes goes down from Jerusalem, travels the 100 miles north to Capernaum to squash the ministry of Jesus and recover their authority and influence with the people. Now, interestingly and importantly, in Matthew's account of these events, it tells us that the scribes saw something in Capernaum. They experienced something very specific. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, it says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, so that the man spoke and saw. Mark does not include this witnessed this demon-oppressed man being delivered. They saw the man being set free. And the fact that the man could now see and speak was irrefutable. Everybody saw it, couldn't argue with it, which seemed to only in this moment strengthen Jesus' authority and influence with the crowds. And so this is not going the way that the scribes had hoped. So what would they do? What could they do? How could they still hope to undermine the ministry of Jesus? Well, back to verse 22 in Mark 3. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So they couldn't deny the miracles of Jesus, could they? They were right there evident for all to see. But what they would do is attack the character of Jesus doing so with a two-part accusation, all right? Part one of their accusation against Jesus is that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, who is Beelzebul? Um, Quite fascinating to trace the history of the word. It's a little bit murky, but I think we can put some pieces together. The root is probably Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub was a god worshipped by the Philistines in Ekron in the Old Testament. If you were to look at some archaeological digs from Philistine cities, they've uncovered golden images of flies associated with Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Later on, the term came to have the meaning Lord of Dung, God of Filth. Now, you can kind of see how those fit together, right? Any McBain people here with me? Um, we're moving into that season, are we not, where the manure spreaders come out? Is that, is that spring when that happens? And when the manure spreaders come out, what also comes out? The flies. So you see how that fits together. Um, the word then kind of morphed into Beelzebub, Lord of the house. And here in context, the house refers to the spiritual underworld, the domain of darkness, the habitation of demons. And who is Lord of that house? Satan. And so Beelzebul is a reference to the devil and the first part of the accusation that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. The second part of the accusation is that Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebul. Could not discredit the miracle. Demons by Beelzebul. So as we mentioned earlier, here's what's happening. The scribes could not discredit the miracles. Couldn't do it. They're there. Everybody sees them. There were too many credible witnesses who saw the lame walk, the blind see, and spiritual captives set free. So what could they do? Well, they could attempt to discredit the source of the miracles. Yes, miracles have taken place, can't deny it, but those miracles, they're not of God. They are, in fact, of the devil. And so, therefore, this miracle worker should not be revered. Rather, he should instead be rejected. And so that is the two-part accusation that the scribes had against Jesus. Number one, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Number two, he casts out demons by Beelzebul. Now, let's look at Jesus' response, the analogy in verses 23 through 27. What's an analogy? 
an analogy. An analogy is very simply a comparison between two things, typically for the purpose of explanation or clarification. You compare two things for the purpose of explanation or clarification. And so here, in giving his response to the accusation, Jesus is going to make an analogy, and he's going to do so in a very particular way. Verse 23, he called to them, the scribes, he called them to him and said to them in parables. Now, you all are somewhat familiar with parables. That word, para, it's a, it's a compound word, para, beside, and then balo, throw. Put it together, it means to throw beside. And so what happens in a parable is a spiritual truth is taught by throwing down beside it a known physical truth. You know, as human beings, we tend to be visual people, right? And so that's why I like to throw up slides and pictures and things that hopefully kind of keeps your intention and keeps you engaged. And we sometimes learn best through pictures. Um, we often need pictures to understand concepts. And so this was a very common form of Jewish teaching, which Jesus used on multiple occasions. In an agrarian society, agriculture, where they were, Jesus would use those elements of agriculture to teach spiritual truths. He would use things like soil, seed, birds, thorns, and so on. Next week, we'll actually be looking at a parable, the parable of the sower, where once again, Jesus will throw down a physical truth next to a spiritual truth to help explain that physical truth. Well, what kind of parables is Jesus going to use here with the scribes? Jesus actually uses two parables that show the illogic of their accusation against him. Two parables that show the illogic of the accusation. Um, to show that this idea that Jesus is possessed by Satan and casting out demons by Satan, that just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense and is therefore illogical. First, Jesus uses a parable of the divided people. A parable of the divided people, which, again, Jesus uses two examples. I think Jesus understands we need some repetition to really get it, so he uses two examples in this parable of the divided people. The first example is divided kingdoms. Divided kingdoms in verse 23. Let's look there. It says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. Now, being good Jews, the scribes would have certainly understood the significance of a divided kingdom. Um, after Solomon's reign, ten of Israel's tribes rejected Solomon's son Rehoboam and separated from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. The northern kingdom came to be known as Israel. What was its capital? Samaria. The southern kingdom came to be known as Judah and Jerusalem was its capital. So it's so sad. Here's God's people divided. God's people were supposed to be a witness to the world, and they're divided. There was continual animosity between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom until ultimately the sad conclusion to this chapter of the story, both north and south were carried away into exile. Truly, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and that includes Satan's kingdom. If Jesus was really an agent of Satan's kingdom, he wouldn't be attacking it and setting spiritual captives free. That's not what he would be doing. And to make sure then that his point is clear, he uses another example of the futility of divided peoples, this time divided families. Divided families. Look at verse 25. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Now, this is Jesus quoting Abraham Lincoln, right? <laughs> just, just checking, all right? No, of course, Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus. This very verse, in fact, when he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. And so just as a kingdom divided cannot stand, a house or a family divided against itself cannot stand. What is true in the physical realm, Jesus says, is true in the spiritual realm. And so the conclusion, it would be illogical for an agent of Satan to attack the kingdom of Satan, as Jesus was doing. A civil war in Satan's kingdom would not build it, rather it would weaken and ultimately destroy it. Jesus then uses a second parable in an effort to answer the illogical accusation against him. The second parable that he tells is the parable of the strong man. I like this one. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. There's actually a lot going on here. Let's identify the characters of the parable. Number one, who is the strong man in the parable? The strong man in the parable is Satan. What is the strong man's house in the parable? It is Satan's kingdom. What are the strong man's goods in his house? Well, they are actually spiritual captives. And who is the one who comes in and binds the strong man? It's Jesus. And then what does Jesus do when he has come in and he has bound the strong man? What does he do? He plunders Satan's kingdom, setting those spiritual captives free. That is the parable of the strong man. So what point is Jesus making in the parable? Jesus is making this point. Jesus has proven himself to be more powerful than Satan. He's the one who comes in and binds Satan. So who's more powerful? Jesus is. And Jesus is then using that power to defeat Satan and to defeat his kingdom. So Jesus has proven himself as the one stronger than the strong man to be more powerful than Satan and is using that power to defeat Satan, plundering his kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing here on earth. The verdict, this is not the behavior of one who is possessed by Satan or doing miracles by the power of Satan. That is not what Satan would want. Rather, as 1 John 3.8 so plainly states, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, not participate in them. And one important aspect of destroying the works of the devil is setting spiritual captives free. Do you remember what was the very first miracle recorded in Mark's gospel? It was um, the casting out of a demon after Jesus preached in the synagogue in Capernaum. Again, further proof that the reason that Jesus came, not to build Satan's kingdom, not to participate in it, but to destroy it, and to say otherwise is clearly illogical. So Jesus uses these two parables that show the illogic of the accusation, parable of the divided people, which includes kingdoms and families, and number two, the second parable, the parable of the strong man. Now we get into some deep weeds. Are you ready? All right. Third element of this text is admonition 
in verses 28 through 30. And it's here that we are confronted by this idea of the unpardonable sin. So look at verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is fantastic news. All sins will be forgiven. Say that word with me, all. One more time, all. Do you know what all means in Greek? All. (laughs) So here's the thing. All sins includes all types of sins. All types of severities of sins. There is no sin brought to Jesus through confession and repentance that is beyond his scope of forgiveness. Amen? Satan would love for you to think that you are beyond God's forgiveness because of the nature of your sins, which are so much more horribly worse than anybody else. You've gone too far. You've done too much. You are beyond the scope of his grace and forgiveness. Satan would love for you to buy into that. But it's a lie. Jesus emphatically says that this is not the truth. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, such a beautiful verse. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What a beautiful, hopeful passage. With Jesus, there is both forgiveness and cleansing for all sins. Except one. Except one. Look at verse 29, which begins with the word, but, which should definitely get our attention, our focus. All sins will be forgiven, but, well, what is the but? Back to verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So the question we have to answer is, what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Because whatever the unpardonable sin is, it seems to be tied to that. That word blaspheme, put it together, it means two parts. Blapto, which means to hurt. Femi, which means to speak. Put it together, it means to speak hurt. Especially to speak words that hurt another's name. To slander, to defame. So, What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Well, quite literally, okay, we're going to look at this from two different perspectives. Quite literally, it means to speak against, to slander, or to defame his name. That's what it means literally to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, to slander or defame, to speak against his name. Now, let's look at it in context of our passage. In the context of our passage... It means to do that in a very particular way. It means to defame the Holy Spirit, to slander him by attributing his work to Satan. To defame the Holy Spirit by attributing his work to Satan. As the Spirit worked through Jesus to deliver the demonized man that we read about in Matthew chapter 12, the scribes witnessed the Spirit's power at work. They saw the Spirit at work with their own eyes. But then they very intentionally blasphemed against the Spirit by attributing that work to Satan. Do you see that? That's very important. 
They intentionally blasphemed against the Spirit by attributing His work to Satan. Now, verse 30 makes this very clear. The passage ends by saying, for they were saying He has an unclean spirit in reference to Jesus. Now, it's important to note, I think, that that phrase, were saying, it's in the imperfect tense, which means that it was not a one-shot deal. They were saying this over and over and over. This was not a new or passing thought for them. Rather, it was something that they had been intentionally rehearsing in their minds, ruminating on over and over, probably long before this particular moment. What happens when you ruminate on such a thought and you go over and over it in your mind? Your heart becomes hardened. Before his stoning, Stephen preached and said this in Acts 7.51. He said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And I think this is actually a good snapshot or a picture of those who are in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. The posture of their heart is one of continual, willful hardening against the Holy Spirit to the point that they attribute his activity to Satan. Sam Storms describes it like this. He says of the unpardonable sin, it is not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. It is not mere denial but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. Again, even to the point of attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. So we might ask the question, okay, well then, why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of hardening our hearts to the point at which we reject the Spirit even to attributing His work to Satan? Again, that's the definition. Why is that unpardonable? Why can't that sin be forgiven? Well, because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unpardonable because it is a willful rejection of the Spirit who is responsible for our regeneration, right? Regeneration is very simply the work of the Spirit in raising dead sinners to life. It's so important and so necessary that we get what regeneration is all about. In our sins, we are dead. Not weak, not a little sick. We're dead. We have to be raised to life. And it is the Holy Spirit that does this work of regeneration. Well, when you reject the Spirit and His work of regeneration you reject salvation. To reject his pardon is unpardonable. Commentator H.A. Ironside, he tells us more about this when he says, Jesus warned them that they were on the verge of becoming so hardened in unbelief that forgiveness was impossible. The unpardonable sin for which there is no forgiveness must be seen in context. Hopefully you're getting that. It does not refer to a single action, but rather to a mindful, willful, defiant attitude of antagonism toward the work of God's Spirit. The Pharisees were manifesting this kind of attitude as evidenced in their attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Mark 3, 28-29 was never intended to torment anxious souls honestly desiring to know Christ But the verses stand out as a blazing beacon warning of the danger of persisting in the rejection of the Spirit's testimony of Christ until the seared conscience no longer responds to the gospel message. Had the scribes crossed the line at this point? I'm not sure. They were certainly close, and Jesus, I believe, was warning them 
with this strong admonition. So, to kind of bring it together, Jesus faces opposition here from religious leaders. There's an accusation. There's a response with an analogy. And here, this, this admonition that Jesus gives to them, let's shift gears now into application and ask the question, how should we then live? Okay? How should we then live? There's a lot going on here. But number one, this was similar to two weeks ago, but here it is again. Be ready to be accused. Be ready to be accused, just as Jesus was accused, even to the point of being labeled as evil. In light of our text today, it's interesting, the words of Jesus in Matthew 10.24 should certainly get our attention. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 10.24. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? They called Jesus Beelzebul. They called him evil. What would you expect that people will say of his followers? They will also call you evil. They will especially call you evil when you commit yourself to unpopular biblical truths. When you commit yourself to, in the beginning, God made them male and female. Or that marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Or that sex is only to be in the context of marriage. Or that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Commitment to these biblical truths and so many others will certainly cause you to be labeled at least as narrow and bigoted, but as things continue in our society, eventually you will be called evil. You'll be called Beelzebul, just as Jesus was. And lest you be tempted to compromise, to give in to the pressure of the culture, which is so very strong and can even make you feel to question and to say, did God really say that? Hear the words of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and so light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Church, stand strong on biblical truth. Do not waver, do not compromise, even in the midst of harsh accusation, even to the point where they call you Beelzebul. Be ready to be accused. Number two, I think this one might be my favorite. Be ready to plunder. Be ready to plunder. Now, what on earth does that mean? Remember the parable that Jesus told today about the house of the strong man in verse 27. Let me read it again. It's short. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The the parable talks about Jesus being stronger than the strong man, Satan. It talks about Jesus binding the strong man. And then once the, the strong man is bound, spiritual captives are set free. This is Jesus on the offensive, is it not? Jesus invading the kingdom of Satan, taking territory from him. It kind of drives me nuts when I hear people talk about our spiritual armor. You remember we did the whole study in spiritual warfare and we went through each piece of the spiritual armor. Often you'll hear people say of the spiritual armor, they'll get caught up in the fact that, well, most of the armor is defensive. 
Therefore, the conclusion is made, well, spiritual warfare must primarily be defensive then. Have you heard that? Yes, you've heard that. You probably think that. But there's so many problems with this as as far as I'm concerned. If that is true, then we are nothing more than um, next. We're spiritual hockey goalies. All we're supposed to do is just deflect Satan's shots. Is that what Jesus did? Not at all. Remember we read in 1 John 3 eight. the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Are we not called to follow his example and to follow his leadership and to do the things that Jesus did? As it says in John chapter 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. I've got to believe that this includes destroying the works of the devil, that we are called to be not just on the defensive. Certainly the armor is for those defensive purposes, but we're given a sword. What's it for? It's for being offensive. And so when we read the book of Acts, do you read about a church that's playing a hockey goalie mentality? No. When we read the book of Acts, we don't read about a church sitting back passively and playing defense and deflecting Satan's shots. Rather, we read about the church forcefully advancing, not perfectly, but they're forcefully advancing, doing the works that Jesus did, taking ground from the kingdom of Satan. I think a, a good analogy for us might be a tank, right? Does a tank have a little bit of armor? It's heavily armored. It is heavily armored. Just as we have many pieces of spiritual armor. But what is the tank with all the armor for? What's it for? For playing defense? No, it's for attacking, it's for taking ground, it's for going on the offensive. Or in the vernacular of the parable that Jesus told, it's for plundering. And so church, let's be more like a tank than a hockey goalie. We must follow the lead of Jesus and be about the business of invading. We must be ready, playing the works of the devil, taking spiritual ground. Indeed, we must be ready to plunder. Lastly, point number three, after we are ready to be accused and ready to plunder, be ready to rest. Be ready to rest. And what I mean is, if you're here this morning, you're a professing believer who is concerned or even anxious about whether or not you have committed the unpardonable sin, don't be. Don't be. You have not committed it. Commentator J.C. Ryle says this, those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it. You see, the nature of it, I hope, as we've described it in context, and again, it is resisting the ministry of the Spirit to the point that we attribute the Spirit and His power to Satan. Has anybody done that? You wouldn't tell me if you did, right? But um, that is the unpardonable sin. That's literally what it is. I have serious doubts that anybody here has committed that sin. It is no one's going to unthinkingly or unknowingly or accidentally commit this sin. It is not a careless word or a careless act. Rather, it is a deliberate hardening of the heart in which the work of the Holy Spirit is attributed to Satan. If you have not done that, you do not have to worry about the unpardonable sin. So rest easy. However, just as Jesus closed this passage with an admonition, let me do the same. And the admonition is this. 
while you may not have committed the unpardonable sin, the sins you have committed make you guilty and deserving of judgment. You hear that? While you may not have committed the unpardonable sin, the sins that you have committed make you guilty and deserving of judgment. But that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. Am I right? That while we were still sinners and deserving of judgment, Christ died for us, paying the penalty for our sins. And he offers to us, therefore, the free gift of eternal life. And so, if we would but turn away from our sins and turn to him alone for forgiveness and receive him as both Savior and Lord, we are free. We are free. And we have the assurance of eternal life of knowing that our sins, the penalty has been paid, the price has been paid. When Jesus hung on that cross, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It has been paid in full. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? And so on one hand, I'm going to probably let everybody here off the hook in regard to the unpardonable sin. But I'm not going to let you off the hook in regard to the fact that we're all sinners. And we deserve God's judgment and God's wrath. But God loved the world so much. He loved you. He loved me so much that he sent his only son, Jesus. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray? And so, God, while I, I do acknowledge it's probably quite unlikely that anybody here has committed this unpardonable sin, it is unanimous, 100%, that we have all committed sins that cause us to stand in a position of being guilty, of deserving wrath and judgment. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in this room even right now that if there's anyone here today who does not know with absolute assurance, with absolute confidence that their sins are forgiven, that they belong to Jesus, that they have eternal life, that if today should be the day that they breathe their last breath, that they have no question or concern whatsoever, that they will be with you forever. God, I pray that this would be the day of salvation for them. And so even in this moment, in the sanctuary, in the commons, maybe you at home, um, if you are here this morning and you feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit, and you need to cross that line of faith to leave here with the assurance of eternal life, would you be willing to raise your hand and say, that's me, pastor. That's me. I need that this morning. I need God's forgiveness. Is there anybody here who would acknowledge that and say, pray for me, pastor? Anyone at all? And then I would say this as I pray for you in a moment. If that is you, would you please come find me, reach out to me, text me, call me, email me, because it is so very important that we sit down together. And it's not just about raising a hand. That's a good place to start. But the invitation of Jesus is to come follow me. Follow me. And so I'd love to talk with you more about what that means and the difference that Jesus makes in in our life. His grace is sufficient for each and every need that includes our salvation and includes all the days to come. So Father, I pray for any who have raised their hand this morning in response in this way to say, I need Jesus. I need salvation. I need his grace 
His grace alone is what makes me free. So in this holy moment, God, I pray that you would work, that you would move, that you would draw people to yourself. And I pray for the opportunity and the privilege of being able to follow up with them this week. We love you. We're so grateful that we don't have to live in anxiety and fear of what sin and some unpardonable sin means to us. We are free indeed. So our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.